0: They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name.
1: Amen. You may be seated. He is risen. Whoa, you did it! Amazing. Hey, if you have kids... And you would like your kids to participate in Missio Kids, you can send them back to our volunteers. Uh, That's all the way up through 8th grade. You can send them back there. They will be in there for an age-appropriate lesson to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. And then kids will be welcomed to, to come back in and participate with us for the remainder of worship. Now as that happens, would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we thank you that today we get to celebrate the resurrection of you. You love to describe today as a feast, as a celebration, as a banquet, as a wedding. And so God, as we enter in to tell the story of resurrection, to sing songs about resurrection, and then to celebrate resurrection with a party, would we know this day as a feast that calls us into something new? a celebration that invites us into a new creation, celebration, resurrection kind of life. We know it as new beginnings, as new opportunities, and new expressions of your love. Spirit, help us to hear it, to see it, and to respond to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here. If you are here. It is so good to have you. I can't wait to celebrate with you. Can't wait to hang out with you outside for our party. Now, as we get started, I want to ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question. I feel like I should say that. I want to ask you a question. What is the best party you've ever been to? Or maybe what is the favorite party you've ever been to? I've been pretty fortunate, I don't mean to brag, but I've been pretty lucky. I've been to some really good parties in my day, uh, some really amazing birthday parties, some very fun graduation parties, some wedding parties thrown by people in this room that I've had the joy of participating in. But I will say, for unbiased reasons, the best party I've ever been to was my own wedding. <laughs> unbiased, I said. And I, I would like to show you a photo for reference. Um, CJ, would you put the photo on the screen? Yeah. Here is here's a photo from my wedding. Uh, here's my wife looking very elegant, my sister looking very classy, me doing what I thought was cool, for sure. Objectively, I thought that was cool. But here's the best part about this photo to me, is next to me is my best friend. So look at that face. That's the face of sheer joy. Only a person who loves you and is happy for you makes that face. Or is singing Sweet Caroline. I'm not actually sure what's happening in this photo. It could be that. Actually, the best part about this is that CJ is running slides right now, so he just had to put up on the screen a picture of himself making that face. I love a good party. That was my favorite party of all time. But what makes a good party a good party? What makes those parties you're thinking about, those parties that you are celebrating, those parties that you are remembering, what makes those parties so significant? It's important that you have your friends and your family and your loved ones. Like, that's a crucial ingredient to a good party. It's essential that you have good food and, like, beautiful displays. I love a good food party. It's helpful if you have a great DJ and a dance floor and music. All of those things are really helpful to have a good party. But I I think the most crucial ingredient for a good party is a good story. The best parties come from stories. They come from hard work. They come from diligent effort. When I got married, it was an expression of a story, a story of falling in love, a story of dating, a story of heartbreak, a story that included loss and confusion and struggle. And so when we get married, it is the expression of so much of that story and that's true of the best of parties if you have a graduation party it's a good graduation party because you did the hard work that got you to the graduation you get a promotion party it's because you did the hard work of a promotion even a birthday party you survived congratulations (laughs) and in the last couple of years that's not a joke honestly it's not a joke that you made it another year through a global pandemic welcome to 2022 you did it you deserve a party The best of parties come from good stories. Now, they are not the end of the story, though. That's also, I think, actually kind of essential, that good parties are a part of good stories, but they are not the end of those good stories. They are just a moment in those good stories. They mark some occasion in the good story, but then they start a new chapter within the story, some new beginning, some new opportunity that we are invited to live into. When you get married, you have a big party. It expresses the story, but life is not over when you get married. I know that sometimes we joke about that culturally. It's actually just beginning you get a new job, life is not ending. The work is not over when you get the new job. No, something actually new is about to begin in your life. You graduate college, have a celebration party, something new is about to begin. The best parties mark a moment in a story, and they begin that story anew. They start a new chapter within that story. And I think That is actually one of the reasons God, all throughout the Bible, loves to tell people to party. But if you read the Bible, you'll actually find a lot of examples of God being like, you know what it's time for? A party. In the most famous moment from Israel's story in the Old Testament, Israel is rescued out of Egypt, right? They're delivered from Egypt. They cross The Red Sea. And then, what is the very first thing that happens? God's like, you know what? It's time for a party. Let's have a meal. And God gives to Israel a commemorative meal to celebrate that they have been rescued, to celebrate the hard story, to celebrate the promises and the fulfillment, but then also to mark a new moment in Israel's story. Something new is actually beginning in this place, something new is actually on the horizon. In this moment, a new chapter, a new story, and a whole new set of questions are being presented to Israel. How now do you live post party? Now, what does this have to do with Easter? Well, God loves to describe his work like a party. He loves to give people parties, he loves to talk about parties. And when we come to the person of Jesus, Jesus loves to describe Easter the resurrection, like a party. Jesus will talk about wedding feasts. He'll talk about kingly banquets. He'll talk about celebration of lost things. And all throughout these party stories, you see this dynamic, that there is a good story that is being celebrated. And then a whole new set of questions that are being asked of the people at the party. A new chapter that is beginning, a new way of life that is beginning post-party. And as that was true for the church in the first century who experienced the resurrection, it is also true for us today. That as we celebrate resurrection, as we gather to have a party, as we celebrate at this table, and then as we go out there to celebrate at those tables, we are celebrating that there is a new beginning, a new creation, a new resurrection party possible for us we're also asking a set of questions. But how now do we live in light of this new resurrection party? Now, to help us see this dynamic, I want to look at Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us three party parables, little stories that center around a party, and they come back to back. And we'll actually spend most of our time in the third party parable, but The first two are helpful to look at just to set up some context and establish some tension. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, there should be one in the chair around you or near you. That is yours to keep or you can just use the screen or your phone, either way. Luke 15 begins with establishing some tension. Verse 1 says this, All of the tax collectors and the sinners were gathered around Jesus to listen to him. And on the other side of Jesus were the Pharisees and the legal experts. As is often true of the story of Jesus, he is surrounded by a strange hodgepodge of humans. On one side you have tax collectors and sinners, and that is a pejorative term that culture would often use for a group of people that had socially violated moral and political standards of the culture around them. Now, he's not talking about people that are greedy, because you don't know that, right? So they're not applying that label to them. They're applying it to people you can see and call and shame. So this is a pejorative term that's used to center a group of people and exclude a group of people. Here are people who have violated religious laws, and they have violated political understanding because the tax collectors worked for Rome, and Rome was the occupying power of Israel. So to call them tax collectors, to call them sinners, it's to exclude them and to name them outsiders who do not belong in this community. And they're on one side of Jesus. And you always see that these outsiders are with Jesus. And on the other side of Jesus are legal experts and Pharisees. And if this group is outsiders, legal experts and Pharisees are the most quintessential insiders in a culture that is primarily religious— These are the heroes. They're the most respected class of citizens. They have religious authority. They have political authority. You would aim your life at these folks. You'd be like, these are the people that we look to for respect and guidance and wisdom. And they're on one side of Jesus. And the text says that these respected insiders were grumbling, saying, this man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. So you can feel the tension. It's the worst kind of party that you can go to. A group of insiders, very cool, excluding everybody else around them. And Jesus begins to notice the tension. And so Jesus breaks the tension by telling stories. And the very first story that Jesus tells is about a shepherd. You may know this story. It's a shepherd who has 100 sheep, and he loses 100 sheep. Shoops? Sheepens. He has 100 (laughs) sheepens. You say it confidently enough, no one can doubt you. He has 100 sheep. He loses one of those sheep, and he leaves the 99 behind, and he goes and finds the one. The implications of that story to the religious leaders who are grumbling about who Jesus eats with would have been quite clear. But in case we today are uncertain of the implication, Jesus adds at the end of the story this in the same way as the shepherd who threw a party to celebrate this lost sheep, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people. But before anybody can respond to this dig that Jesus has just done at the religious leaders, he adds another story. But this time, about a woman with ten coins. And this woman has ten coins. She loses one of those coins, and she tears up her whole house in search of that final coin. She finds the coin, and then she invites all her neighbors over, which, in retrospect, is actually a very strange thing to do. It's like you lost your keys, and then you invite your neighbors over to be like, I found my keys! Everybody, let's have a party! I like the energy, though, you know? You should have more celebrations in life. And she throws a party to celebrate finding the lost coin. And again, in case anybody has missed the implications of this story, Jesus adds this at the end of it. In the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God over one sinner who changes both heart and life. Now, you can probably imagine the way this is hitting a group of insiders and outsiders who have drawn lines and boundaries around religious obligations, social standing, and expectations. It's probably stirring up some festering feelings, probably at least a bit annoying to hear. But Jesus is still not done. He's got one more story to really press on the drama of this moment. And this final story is often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But I think it's actually better called the parable of lost sons. Because in this final story, we meet two sons who are perfect representations of this insider and outsider tension. And as you hear this story, I would just invite you to reflect on which character speaks most to you. So in this final story where Jesus is stirring up the drama, he's here for the drama, we meet at first a younger brother. And Jesus says this about the younger brother. The younger brother comes to his father and the younger brother said this to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now this is an outrageous demand in the ancient world because in effect, this younger son is telling his father, Hey, old man, I wish you were dead. So let me have the things that would be mine if you were dead. Let's live life as though you no longer exist. Let me have my share. And it's not money in a bank account. This is the ancient world. I don't even know this. There was no bank accounts. It's land. It's ancestral property. It's sheep. It's cattle. It's belongings. He's like, let me have the place you live. Let me have the place that provides for you. Let me have the things that you use to care for those around you, as though you were dead. And if you heard this in the crowd, if you're the religious leaders, probably even the sinners in this moment, this is an outrageous claim. And it is a claim that is so outrageous to make against a father that the Old Testament in Deuteronomy has provisions for stoning a child if they behave this way. Just to understand the tension of this moment, everybody who's a religious leader in the crowd would have heard this story, and they'd be like, oh, Jesus is going to go, Deuteronomy 21, bring the kid before the elders, and then kill him. This is the family-friendly narrative we've been waiting for Jesus to tell. (laughs) None of this lost coin stuff. Kill the kid. (laughs) We're out of control. So it's an outrageous claim. It is an infuriating claim. And all the people in the crowd would have been like the response that the father is going to give is he's going to try the son. But what happens? Jesus tells us this that the father divided his estate between them. And he gives to the younger son the outrageous thing he demands. The father gives to the young son the very thing that he asked for, which would have felt even crazier to those who are listening. You do what this kid asks? You give the thing that he asked for? You do this thing? That's crazy. Jesus goes on to tell us, after loading this drama on, he says, And then the son, soon afterward, gathered everything together. He took a trip to a land far away, so he leaves Israel, and he wasted His wealth, that inheritance, that gift of his father, the thing that his father and his father's father had earned and inherited and received, he wasted through extravagant living. The son has already committed in the ancient world an outrageous, grievous offense, but Jesus is just piling on one kind of offense after another to make this character as abominable as possible. He spends this wealth somewhere else. So that means he's taken the land that belonged to Israel, he sold it, and then he spent it in another land. Again, for an Israelite people group in the ancient world, that would have been so wrong. If somebody did it, you were actually supposed to ban them from the community. You were supposed to treat them like they were no longer part of the people of God, the chosen people of God. So it's another level of offense. But then when he spins all the things that he has, it says that the Conditions grow tiresome. He runs out of money and the world gets difficult. So then it goes on to say this Jesus says, When he's used up all of his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and the young son began to be in need. So he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He was so hungry that he longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. If you're listening to this in that crowd, there is so much to be mad about if you're a religious expert or a Pharisee. He's wasted the inheritance. He's sold it. He's left to a foreign land. and Now he's so desperate that he is violating ceremonial laws. He's with pigs. What are you doing? Jesus is basically making this kid, this character, to be the most intense outsider we can possibly imagine. He's loading the shame on just so we understand and see the weightiness of this person's actions. Now as the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the sinners are listening to this conversation, Jesus tells us that the kid grows hungry and decides that he should return home. That it would be better for him in his father's house, even as a servant, than it would be here in this place. So he begins to head home. Now, I think we can imagine how hard that decision would actually be. Because if you've ever done anything that even felt like a failure, that made you go back home, you know the kind of like shame that that can carry, the weightiness that that can carry. And you also know how that story can spread. Like, we don't Live in the ancient world, we have to walk past people, but you still know that if you failed or had a mistake, and it would spread to the community around you, and you would feel that sense of shame, that's even more intense in the ancient Near East. Because you'd have to walk through a village, people would see you, they would know you. And a a Bible scholar named Mark Baker captures this dynamic really, really well. He rewrote this parable from the perspective of the community. Kind of missed the communal understanding of this parable, but he rewrote it from the perspective of the community, and I think it's very powerful. He picks up when the young son is about to enter back into town, and this is what the parable says. I was one of the first to see him, and he was a sight. Dirty, thin, barefoot, wearing patched-up clothes that looked like rags. He walked with his head low, obviously hoping that we would not recognize him and me, I was glad to see him looking this bad because I didn't want my sons running off the same way that he had. As he entered the village, we all began to yell at him and insult him, "'You worthless pig, leave our village!' This is what the dynamic would have been like in the ancient world. This son has violated religious laws. He's violated social laws. He's violated the trust of his family and of his community. And so he would experience shame and would most likely be banned from that place. What happens to that young son? As he enters into the village and begins to experience the ire of that community, Mark Baker's version says this. But all of a sudden, people began to look down the street. His father was running. Yes, running towards us. We were all shocked because in our culture, men do not run. Older men, elders, they wait for others to approach them. Running is for children, not elders. How shameful. Just imagine what he is exposed, his robes flying in the air, Then the father hugged and kissed his filthy son. While the son stood there in shock, we all shut up. We could not insult or ban the son when his own father welcomed him home. In fact, his father was humiliating himself to stop us from shaming his son. The father runs to meet his son, to welcome him, to love him, and to absorb the cost the son has incured but we are still not done with the parable jesus's final moment and it gets again told from mark baker says this the father left no doubt that he was accepting the son back he responded by telling his servants to put sandals on the son's feet a ring on his finger and fine robes on him without a word of rebuke the father covered up his son's filth and restored him as a true son and he told his servants to prepare a feast and kill the fatted calf Not even a lamb or a chicken. The father not only expected him back, but honored him and celebrated his return in the presence of the entire village. Now the tension of this moment for Jesus' audience must have been so thick. Because Jesus has done everything wrong in telling this story. The son should have been rejected, killed, and at least banished from the community. But instead, in this story, the father gives to the son the worst request and then accepts him back into the community, back into the family, and restores him to his sonship. And if you are listening to the story, the implication, as the first two stories has been, the implication is crystal clear. God is a father who not only welcomes lost things, who not only forgives lost things, but restores lost things. The father is the character who absorbs the cost of wasted inheritance, the shame of the community, and even his own betrayal and his own hurt in order to welcome back and restore his son. That is the clear implication of this first son's story. Jesus welcomes him back and restores him, and pays the full cost of lost things. Church, this is the very good news of the Easter party, and it is the thing that Jesus is here to do. The Apostle Paul gives us a bit more theological description of this in 2 Corinthians five fourteen, saying, the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one died for the sake of all, therefore all died. So then if anyone is in Christ... That person is a new creation. The old things have gone away. Look, new things have arrived. The resurrection of Jesus is the feast of new beginnings, of new creation. It is the moment where the Father absorbs the full cost of lost things, absorbs the shame that a community would heap upon us, absorbs the rejection that we would heap upon ourselves, absorbs the cost of our sin and the inheritance that we have wasted, absorbs every piece of it to welcome us back into the party, to put a ring on our finger, sandals on our feet, to have the fattened calf prepared, and to throw the best party so that a new story can begin so that all things can go away and a new beginning become true. And every one of us is invited to the resurrection party. But here is the thing about good parties, is that it is actually sometimes kind of hard to receive and accept our invitation to those parties. Right in the middle of this passage that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and I use verse 17, but verse 16, Paul says we have to view people as new creation works because it is sometimes hard to do that viewing work. Which is why Jesus tells us right after this moment about the younger son, he begins a story about an older son. There's another brother in this parable, another lost son, and we meet this older brother in verse 25. The party is happening. The feast is underway. And verse 25 says this. Now, the father's older son was in the field. And he's coming in from his hard day work. And he approached the house. And he heard music and dancing. And then he stops. I think this is a fascinating moment. Who hears music coming from their own home and doesn't enter it i would like at least want to know that it's not some disco burglar in my house (laughs) who knows (laughs) he hears the party he smells the food and again remember it is coming from his own home but what does he do he stops in the field and he looks on at the party who hears a party and stops all the introverts are like, mm, me? <laughs> I see the party, and then I drive away. <laughs> I resonate with, I get it. But we learn the older brother is not just an introvert. There is a reason he does not enter the party. It says he calls his servant, and he learns that his brother has returned, and that the party that's happening in the house is for his lost younger brother. His younger brother, he hears that the party is happening, and the text says he is furious. Doesn't celebrate. Doesn't feel joy. Doesn't feel the rapture that CJ's face displayed at my wedding. No, it says he is furious and would not enter the party. The older brother sees a good party and refuses to enter. Why do you think that is? Why does he stop? What stops him from entering? What stops him from celebrating? What stops him from experiencing new creation, resurrection, party? I think, this is my personal thought, I think that it has to do with fear. It doesn't look like fear on the surface, but fear rarely looks like fear when it first shows up in people. When I feel most afraid, I do not shudder. Though I mean, I do when I'm watching a horror movie. I am uh, easily frightened. But when I deeply feel fear, my response is normally to seize control to get big, to get large, to get micromanagey, to try to get as much of my hands on what is slipping out of them as possible. And if I can't seize control over the issue, I will get big and fighty and sometimes even deeply self-righteous to justify myself, to insulate myself from feeling afraid. If I can feel justified enough, if I can feel right enough, then maybe I can protect myself from fear. And I think we see this in the older brother. It says the father comes out to him and begins to beg him to enter the party. But in verse 30, it says, the older brother responds to his father and says this, When this son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. The older brother acts like the issue is the wrong that has been done. Like as though what he's mad about is that his father has lost something, that his father has suffered some grievous wound. But I think that is fear masking itself, trying to justify its own existence. It's hiding behind justice. It's hiding behind righteousness. It's hiding behind this attack. But in 29, I think we learn the real issue. The brother says, look, I have served you all these years. I never disobeyed your instructions, yet you have never given me as much as a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. I think the older brother is afraid that there is not enough for him. That if you welcome the young son back into the house, that if you give him more of your inheritance, that the, the inheritance he's already squandered and wasted and moved away well then he'll just come back and do it again and there won't be enough for this older brother who has diligently worked and served and tried the older brother sees the world through a lens of scarcity and his brother's return threatens the remaining inheritance if you give him a calf what will i have if you welcome him to the table where will i sit is there enough for both of us after the thing that he's done again, we have to remember the tension of this moment. Jesus told these stories to a crowd of religious leaders. And for the most part, he's been kind of digging at those religious leaders, those Pharisees, those experts of the law. And I've been wondering, what, like, what are they feeling in this moment? Because again, the implication is clear. Everyone knows who they are in the story. Everybody is clear about the character they play in this moment. So they're probably feeling mad, right? They're probably feeling irritated that this story has unfolded the way that it has to make them out to be the older brother. But if I can just be honest, the truth is, is I'm an older brother. Like of all the characters in the story that I am most like, I'm the older brother. I'm a religious professional. I'm a modern-day Pharisee. Ew. It's true, though. (laughs) Well, I'm a religious expert. I'm a modern day Pharisee. In this community, in this context, like I'm the in crowd. And so I'm an older brother, and I am actually the one that Jesus is speaking to in this moment about older brothers. I might have been a younger brother once, but here's the truth most younger brothers grow up, and many of us become older brothers eventually. And as an older brother, I can tell you, I think, the question I'm wrestling with the most in this parable. It's the same fear the older brother experiences. It's a question of, is there enough for me too? I see how the father pursues the younger brother, and I wonder actually, will he do that for me? I actually see how you absorb the cost of the younger brother, and I wonder, is there enough for me? Will you absorb the cost of my lost inheritance? Will you chase me in the field the same way you did the younger brother? Will you meet me in the same way and restore? Even though my issues and my problems and the things I bring are different, will you meet me? Will you greet me? Will you Welcome me. Is there enough for older brothers too? Will you meet me in the field and celebrate my return? And here's what Jesus says the father does. The older son was furious and did not want to enter the party, but the father came out to the older brother and begged him, into the party the father leaves the party the 99 and goes for the other son he listens and endures and absorbs the very worst hostility the older brother has to give he takes it into himself and he is done taking it he offers grace and restoration and a word of truth strange thing about this parable is that younger brothers and older brothers kind of the same just the field that we find ourselves in when the father meets us. The father goes to the older brother and begs him to enter. And the older brother gives this tirade, this selfish tirade, to the father. And the father listens, endures it, hears the word. And when the older brother has exhausted his self-righteousness, the father says the most beautiful and disarming thing, I think, in this parable. He says this. Then the father said, son, you are always with me, and everything I have is already yours. The tragic irony of us older brothers is that the thing we are most afraid of losing is already ours. And it is actually our fear that will steal it from us. The older brother wanted to throw a party, and the father responds, why didn't you? It always could have been yours. You wanted to have a calf. You wanted to have your friends over. It's yours. Why didn't you? You wanted to celebrate your inheritance. Why didn't you? And not only could he have thrown a party at any moment, not only could he have experienced the joy of resurrection at any moment, the maybe most acute irony of this whole story is that all the things the older brother is demanding are happening inside that house at that very moment. A party is happening. A calf has been slaughtered. A table has been laid. Music is playing. The whole village is there, your friends included. This is your party too. Your brother has also returned. Why don't tastes like. That's the irony of us older brothers, is that in our fear, we steal from ourselves the very thing that already belongs to us. In our fear, we cannot see that the party Jesus is throwing is also for us, that everyone is invited, and that there is more than enough for all of us. Jesus is a very clever storyteller, and so this is where he ends the parable. We don't know what the older brother does. The father goes to the field, meets the older brother, extends this invitation and this grace, and then Jesus stops telling the story. I think about it like Jesus is sort of ending the story and then rolling the ball into our court and saying, So, what would you like to do? The table is laid, the party is underway, resurrection is at work. What do you want to do with it? How would you like to respond? Church, the resurrection party of Easter is underway. And it is a party that is for everyone. Younger brothers and sisters and older alike. Everyone is invited to die with Christ and live with him to celebrate new stories, new beginnings, new chapters, and resurrection. That's what this party is for. And it is always available, and it is always open. But the question for us, younger and older siblings, is will we come in from the fields? Will we celebrate and be celebrated? Will we experience and let ourselves experience restoration and new beginnings? In a moment, we will enact this party outside with food and games and celebration and it'll be awesome but before we do that table we are going to come to this one we gather at this table every single week and as we do we remember this resurrection feast that jesus has made available to us on the last night that jesus with his disciples he takes the bread and the cup and he breaks it And he says, this is my body. This is what enables new resurrection. This is absorbing the cost of wasted inheritance, taking the shame of a community and the false stories we write upon yourselves. This is my body absorbing it. This is my blood spilled. Would you take it and eat and remember the party? Enter the resurrection feast. So, Missy, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to continue to worship together through song. And as we do, I invite you to respond to the question of this party's story and come to this table. Maybe it's the very first time, you are welcome. Maybe it's the thousandth time, you are welcome. Everyone is invited to experience the kingdom at this table. This bread of all varieties, for us gluten-free, egg-free, there's even sealed elements. You just take it, come to the table, you can pray at the table as long as you would like or you can go back to your seats. But would you come with that question? How will we respond to the resurrection feast? Let's pray. Jesus today as we continue to celebrate resurrection. Like, would it be a party? Would it be a fun party? Would it be a celebratory party? But would all of those features, that celebration, that partying, the feasting, the egg hunting, would all of it draw us into the story of you? That we gather here because of the hard work of your cross and resurrection, and we leave this place a new creation, resurrection people. Would that be the primary thing that the table and the celebration and the party draws us into? That we are all invited to experience new creation and we are all invited to live it out. Spirit, press that into us. Help us to see it, hear it, come in from the fields and party with you. Jesus, we pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen.